If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Peter Colas, the co-founder and CEO of Ethos, the next-gen life insurance firm. Ethos algorithmically underwrites applicants in real time and binds policies instantly. Ethos was named to Forbes FinTech 50 list for its modern approach to insure tech, and the company has raised over $100 million from Goldman Sachs, Google, and Sequoia Capital. Prior to co-founding Ethos, Peter was the CEO of Ovid, a digital life insurance marketplace until its acquisition. Peter holds an MBA from Stanford. Let's welcome Peter. Hi, Peter. Hey, Alexa. Thanks for having me. I love having you. I'm really excited, and it's so nice to see your face. I want to dive right in. So let's just rewind. What's ethos in your own words and walk us through the original aha moment when you said, I've got to go build this business, especially given that you actually started in insurance and you've built businesses in insurance before. Yeah. So ethos is the first truly digital life insurance firm and it's affordable, instant, and it's accessible to almost everybody in the US. So when I think back to the origin story of it, My co-founder, Linky, and I were roommates at business school. And in typical Silicon Valley fashion, we complemented each other's strengths. He was strong technically. I was kind of sales and marketing guy. And we were looking for our second act after our first company got acquired. And we came across this stat that 5% of kids will lose a parent before they turn 15 years old, which was startling and even more startling. When that happens, around 70% of the time, the family goes bankrupt almost immediately. And so we figured out life insurance was great, but it wasn't being executed well due to the things everyone's kind of aware of. When you get life insurance, you traditionally have to take a medical exam, get sold an investment feature product from an aggressive agent, usually takes 15 weeks, et cetera. And so we figured out, could we deliver a better solution in the market? And what we stumbled upon was a very large, very old market. There are 10 life insurers on the Fortune 100, which is insane. And the average age of those 10 life insurers is 122 years old. And so 122 years ago, there was no World War I, there were no cars, there was no polio vaccine. And you have a low NPS product in a non-vertically integrated market. And we said we could have a real great impact on the world and the people around us by building an incredible customer experience. And so that's how we started Ethos. Obviously, Ethos is close to my heart. Having, you know, I, I built LearnVest, sold it to Northwestern Mutual, was chief digital officer there and spent a lot of time thinking about life insurance. And then I've become friends to the Ethos business. One of the things I wanted to just dig into a bit, you've developed a new model for life insurance. What were the specific pain points that you set out to solve? And talk a little bit about what does modern life insurance look like today, knowing that 
you often have two parents working. We're living a lot longer. We have better access to data, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So there are a few innovations for the customer. The first was being able to purchase it through a self-serve model without having to do it through an in-person or on-the-phone agent, which sounds trivial, but 99% of life insurance even today are sold through in-person agents. The second one was speed of purchase. So usually it takes 15 weeks to buy a policy or more. In contrast, Ethos, you can buy while you're in line at Starbucks. I asked our product team right before I came here for a recent example, and apparently someone bought a policy last night at 2 a.m. from Ethos, and it took them three minutes from the time they hit our website to the time they had a policy, which is so fundamentally different. That's just wild. (laughs) And then the third one is making it accessible to people who the traditional industry doesn't focus a lot on. So whether those are people who are seniors or people who have lower income or bad credit or people who are even less healthy than traditional agents and carriers like to focus on. So you have these large uninsured populations that the industry has kind of looked over and our digital model and our advancements in underwriting allow us to democratize the product and serve these categories in a sustainable way that's both good for them and for us. First of all, three minutes, pretty crazy. And I appreciate the point of view of, you know, typically life insurance is a really laborious process. You need fluids, you need to get blood, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a big step forward. At its core, insurance is a data-driven business. You know, I've thought about this a lot. What new approaches to data are you bringing to the industry? And how do you take the medical exam out of the product? Is it because you have smaller policies? Help people understand how you make that possible. Yeah. So think about a a typical process. An insurance carrier, which is responsible for underwriting risk, receives from their agent, they never meet the customer, and they receive from their agent either a paper application or a PDF. And they're supposed to make an evaluation from that on whether or not this person is an acceptable risk and what price to charge. Contrast that to ethos. We started off life purely as a distributor of life insurance, but we vertically integrated into being an underwriter because we realized there was so much advantage to having a direct relationship with both the customer and being responsible for the underwriting. We collect thousands of data points on each customer, whether it's how you behave on our site, whether it's where you came from, what your lifestyle choices have been and how those lifestyle choices and habits lead to different outcomes, what your medical background and history is, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a combination of what you did before you came to Ethos, what your interactions with Ethos are and what you tell us, and then all sorts of consented supplementary data that we pull and algorithmically underwrite. Now we did the hard work up front of building our own internal algorithmic underwriting engine. And it's the most advanced engine in the industry by far. What it allows us to do is not only look at individual data points and many more of them than anyone else looks at, but it also allows us to, in real time, correlate these different data points. And we're the first in the life insurance industry to use multivariate-based algorithmic underwriting. So it's a huge advancement. It translates to more accurate pricing for customers and better managed risk for us and our our reinsurance partners. So Peter, I just want to step back, okay? If you think about the future in life insurance in a decade, so not today, 10 years out, knowing everything that you know about how we as individuals are evolving, how we think about our risk, how it's evolving, literally how just, again, 
you know, life insurance made so much sense in 1950 when you often only had one working parent and God forbid, you know, a male goes to war and all of a sudden, you know, his wife and kids could be left destitute. The world's evolved a lot. But if you fast forward even more 10 years out, just what are some of your predictions specific to you from your point of view on what you think the future of life insurance could look like? I think that there will be less investment feature policies sold because there are other good retirement solutions that compete with these policies, you know, products offered from Fidelity, et cetera, especially competing against annuities in a low interest rate environment. And so I think there are going to be more products geared towards protection rather than investment and wealth transfer. And then, you know, I, I look at banking as a indicator of where insure tech is going more generally, you know, banking tech started out probably 10 years earlier than insure tech. And it took a while, but now you have companies like Square, PayPal, Venmo, Chime, Revolut that are redefining a category. And they're all starting with customers that are worth a lot less on average than a Wells Fargo traditional customer or pick your bank. And then the conversation inside Wells Fargo is, like a classic Clay Christensen disruption model conversation, which is like, well, we don't want these customers anyway. They're not our most profitable customers. And the disruptor then, you know, delivers an incredible experience to users and has a toehold into every other product that the bank sells. And so I think for insure tech and, you know, the future of insurance, term life insurance for us is maybe it's a, it's a product that is focused on protection and it's not the most profitable product in the life insurance industry, but it's, you know, look at what we've built. We've built this incredible distribution system. And then we've built this, you know, the most advanced underwriting technology in the industry. And we've built this incredible digital administration layer that allows us to protect people with no incremental cost and access a much broader swath of customers than are previously insurable by any other life insurance carrier. So I think insure tech will follow banking tech in the not so distant future. And I'm really excited about it. I think we're at the forefront of this. Can you walk people through the customer experience? Just like really bring a, you know, you can yeah. line at Starbucks and do it in three minutes, but help people understand what does that mean? How does the customer experience, you know, delight customers in an unusual way? Sure. So people range from 18 to 85 on our platform in age. They live in 49 states where we're live and they get on their phone typically and they go to ethoslife.com and you get in a preliminary quote and you start applying. And the application process, you know, kind of feels like you're filling out a form at the beginning, you know, checkup of a doctor, but you're telling us valuable information that we then use to make an assessment about what your mortality risk is. And within, you know, people on average do it in less than eight minutes. At the end of those eight minutes, we either have an instant offer for you right then and there, or within the next day, we have an offer for you. And so 99% of our customers don't have any medical exams or blood tests or anything like that. It's truly an amazing experience. And then if you want to buy term life insurance, you just click you know, check out in the same way that you would buying a purse on an e-com site. And so, you know, delivering a, a modern experience. In the background, while you're filling out that application, we're learning so much about you and looking at things like your pharmaceutical records, all sorts of credit related information, things that you grant us the ability to, but, you know, there are a lot of unintuitive things that are a predictor of mortality. 
Things like how often you floss your teeth. We don't use that in our algorithms, but there are all sorts of interesting things that, that are a predictor of how long someone will live. I'm just laughing at that because my husband like flosses nightly and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what that says about him, but that's kind of amazing. How big are the policies that you're able to sell in three minutes? Yeah, we'll sell up to a million dollar policy in three minutes, which covers, you know, north of 95% of American families. And then for one that's larger than that, we'll, you know, usually do a little bit more thinking and underwriting. But today we're really focused on serving the average American family versus a, you know, high net worth family that needs a lot, a lot of coverage. So. Peter, I would love for you to tell us what you can share and how you know it's working. I mean, you've raised over $100 million from incredible investors, Sequoia, Excel, celebrities like Jay-Z and Will Smith. Can you give people a sense, you know, you're the CEO, you're, you're literally, you know, holding the reins of the business. How do you know it's working? We have an NPS of 86. We're issuing billions of dollars of coverage every quarter. We're protecting a lot of families who are really getting a lot of value out of this product. And the coolest part about it is a lot of these families otherwise would not have gotten life insurance. And so that's the rewarding part of it where we realize, hey, we're going to put food on some kid's table. We're going to send some kid to college. We're going to pay somebody's mortgage who otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten it. So that's from a, you know, the output standpoint. From the input, I listened to the sucking sound for product market fit in the market. And what we saw was when we originally started Ethos, we had to overcome this challenge where everyone in the industry told us life insurance is sold, not bought. It's a complicated product. You need somebody in person there to kind of really you know, convince someone that this is good for them. And what we found is if we just eliminate every possible point of friction and make it so, you know, I call it stupid simple, someone as dumb as me can buy it, then you know, it doesn't need to be sold to somebody. They'll naturally figure out that this is the right thing for their family and purchase it themselves. And so that's what we saw is we saw people buying this themselves without us trying to convince them it was good for them. Peter, I'm so proud to, to be able to be a, a small investor. And I think one of the things you just said really resonates with me, which is when you think about early product market fit, you want the sucking sound, which is literally people inhaling your product because it's working. Um, and I think that's pretty incredible. Uh, and, you know, as somebody who is a financial planner, you know, everyone out there listening, everybody, the second that you have a mortgage, a spouse or a child, you need to have at the minimum term life insurance, because you need to be able to make sure you can protect your family. And I just love that you've made it so much easier. I want to transition a little bit to COVID. COVID has impacted every industry. And I know firsthand it's impacted life insurance. What have you guys seen and how has COVID changed the landscape that you're navigating for the better or for the worse? You could not have found a more interesting business to run through a <laughs> pandemic than a life insurance company. <laughs> I, you know, I'm giving you a softball here, Peter. I'm like, hey, Peter, how is COVID, given that life is like what you protect? Yeah. How has this been over the last now seven months? I've certainly gone through phases of emotions. In the beginning, it was interesting. People, given the uncertainty in what COVID would mean for them and their families, were clamoring for more coverage you know, on average, Americans are, you know, definitely underinsured. And so people said, I need to buy life insurance now. And at the same time, you saw the traditional industry struggle to meet this demand because no one wanted to meet an agent in person or take a medical exam in order to get coverage. And so the model of ethos was particularly useful 
you know, as you think about when's the right time to transition from like Barnes and Nobles to Amazon, like it was now for life insurance. And so you started to see that like every fintech company in COVID, we had numbers going, you know, totally berserk in every possible way. You know, if you ask someone who works at Venmo or, or Chime or whatever, you know, different metrics were, were going every, every different way. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Peter, I want to transition to you. Where'd you grow up? Tell us about your background. How'd you know you were going to be an entrepreneur? Grew up in a variety of places. I spent uh, my high school years working on a cattle ranch during the day and going to school in a double wide trailer at night, which is atypical for folks in the Valley. I learned responsibility at a really young age. I learned how to work really hard, overcome obstacles and not be coddled as a child, which I I think led to me being comfortable with risk and adversity. As far as deciding that the entrepreneurial path was right for me, I qualified the entrepreneurial path as a thousand mile journey started by somebody who doesn't know how long a thousand miles is. And if they did, it's not clear if they would have started it to begin with, but you know, I, I was working at an advertising agency and I was in my office late one night watching a interview with Steve Jobs. And he said something that pushed me to do more than what I was currently doing. He said something to the effect of most people tell you when you're young to stay on a very well-trodden path and to do well at school and get a good safe job and save some money and start a family and try not to bounce into the walls too much. And that it's a very limiting view of life. And so I came to realize that all the life around me was created by people who were no smarter than myself. And I could change things. I could influence things. You know, I could make the world a better place. And so I you know, moved to California where the culture of entrepreneurship is intoxicating. And I was surrounded by people who were building all sorts of fascinating businesses and ultimately pursued ethos. Give us a sense of like, what are the one or two things from your childhood that you draw upon in like really dark moments or just, you know, hard, exhausting moments that you think maybe came from that cattle ranch from high school? Whether it's your upbringing, um, something that's maybe even more relatable to people is sports. You know, a lot of us play sports and I played a lot of sports growing up. And I think those taught me a lot of lessons as well. Some of the same lessons as a cattle ranch. I was about to come back there because you are a boxer. I mean, you've done a, you've done rugby, you've been a boxer uh, and a rock climber. And so you actually have been an extreme athlete in some ways. So cattle ranch and extreme athlete go. Both these things can teach you a lot. So I think I learned extreme focus, the ability to really stare at a problem and think through a problem and work on a problem much longer than the person next to me. And with that accompanying work ethic. And I think with extreme focus and work ethic, you can outperform almost anyone. 
you know, with something like boxing, there is nothing left to chance or luck. There's only you and your opponent's abilities and how hard you focus and how much work ethic and stamina you have is usually the deciding factor, not natural gift or IQ. And a nuanced point within that is your results are often a function of your preparation. So both, you know, boxing or your success at whatever you want to do, the outcome is usually decided long before the fight ever begins, right? Whether you win or lose, it's decided on by thousands of hours of training that you put into it, not how you showed up in the ring that day. And so then the last thing I'd say is whether you're on a cattle ranch and something's gone terribly awry, or you're in a boxing ring and you're losing to somebody who is outmatching you very clearly. And the one last thing I learned is to stay in control when things are not going perfectly, which often occurs in the entrepreneurial journey. You look at ethos and from the outside, it looks like a perfect success story that's always up and to the right. But like every business on the inside, you're dealing with new obstacles every single day. And when you're stuck in a boxing ring and you're clearly on the losing track to someone who's better than you, you can't walk out of the ring. You're in there until the bell. And then you have to get back in after the bell for the next round. And you have to stay calm and you have to manage the situation to the best of your abilities and always move forward. And a lot of people freeze up in the face of adversity or turmoil. Um, and I've learned that's not me. I'm comfortable always moving forward, regardless of the challenge. What has been the thing that's been most surprising for you? For everyone out there who maybe is thinking of starting a business, what has been the part of the entrepreneurial journey that you weren't prepared for or that you were like, wow, I can't believe X? After you achieve product market fit, it's all about people. And as the CEO, your job changes every quarter as the company is scaling. So I've had to change my hat and my role literally every quarter since we started focusing on different things, having to learn new skills so that I am still the best person to run the business. And in the end, as the company gets bigger, it's all about your ability to recruit an amazing team, help them work harmoniously together, set a really clear mission and vision and goals for the team to work towards and support them however you can. And it's very different than whatever skills led you to start the company, build your first product, raise your first round, hire your first engineer, et cetera. And that has allowed it to be so intellectually stimulating for me and fulfilling. It's not easy. I'd say being a CEO is not fun. Most great CEOs don't have a lot of fun in their job, but it's very fulfilling to be able to work with such talented people as I work with at Ethos and build such amazing product. I'm only smiling because uh, uh, someone said this to me and I did not come up with this, but someone said to me, the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is that the better you are at it, the harder your job gets. And mm. it's a little bit of what you just said, which is the better that you're doing, the literally your job changes more rapidly because quarter by quarter, it becomes a different job because it's actually working. And so, the more you get into it, the steeper your learning curve gets. And I don't know about you, but that really resonated with me. And so I, I, I sincerely appreciate that point. Um, I want to uh, talk about one thing you once have said publicly that I thought was really special. You've talked about experiencing imposter syndrome when you started your Stanford MBA. And I think it's 
incredible that you've been so vulnerable publicly. How did you overcome that? Just for all the people out there that feel like they're imposters and they're trying to do something superhuman, any any tips? You know, growing up at a cattle ranch, the, the highest level math class I had taken when I went to Stanford was high school geometry. And I got a B. Now, if, think about it. I'm now running, you know, a life insurance business, which is one of the more technical mathematically businesses that, that you can operate in. But I think the point is, I showed up and I spent some time around some very impressive people who had a lot of fancy backgrounds and titles. And the more time I spent with them, the less I was impressed with the backgrounds and titles. There are some people who are exceptional and then others are, you know, not. And so what I realized when I would encounter someone who's exceptional is they usually achieved what they did through work ethic, mental focus, and a tolerance for risk and a drive versus something they learned in a classroom at a fancy school or some sort of natural ability and gift. And so that gave me uh, even more confidence that the world's your oyster and no one can define the limit of your abilities except for you. I truly think that you're the only one who defines your own potential. And so it keeps me going every day. I love that, Peter. I want to transition a bit because even before COVID, you were managing a distributed team. You have offices in Austin, Singapore, and San Francisco. What tips would you have for everybody out there listening that now are managing a distributed team? Because even if you're all in the same city, you're all at home. What are just the one or two kind of things that you've learned that have made you successful at managing people in lots of locations? Over-communication is probably the most important difference. I think that it's incredibly important to set a very clear mission and have very clear goals for the team and constantly reiterate them, but even more so in COVID when everyone is working remotely. And there's so much distraction in the world, whether it's pandemics, fires in California, elections, you know, pick your disaster to deal with. And so I try to frequently communicate with our broader team, both through Word, but also live on Zoom. And then also I, just, I send videos to people where I, I just dictate kind of what I'm thinking and try to have that personal connection. I think the biggest thing that gets lost in remote work, what I've observed is people can you know, only work with folks who are in their surrounding team and develop myopic views about a particular thing because they don't have that water cooler talk with someone who they would run into from the other side of the office. And what we do is try to create a lot of kind of cross-pollination between different teams so that people can still have broader views on issues, get to meet more people within the company and, and not only be limited to the same, you know, six or eight people every day. I love that. So you're clearly just like an absolute workhorse. It is in your DNA. You know, I want to give everyone, what are your hacks? Is there anything you swear by, you know, each week, each month, is there a tool, an app, a behavior that you have to do that keeps Peter sane? You won't catch me giving you advice on meditation or interim fasting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm old fashioned. I play a lot of chess. And that's a nerdy answer, but it really helps give me the ability to focus more deeply in other aspects of my life because it just trains your mind in a certain way. And it's you, when you play it enough, it's actually relaxing to play that. And then 
I make sure to stand up every hour and drink a lot of water. It's easy to get dehydrated when you're working from home as a workaholic. Um, I, first of all, just, I love the like absolute polarization of those two. You're like, I love to play chess, but also stand up every hour and drink water. Um, it's fantastic. If you step back and you think about what you're so, what you built at Ethos, what is the thing that you're most proud of? The customer experience and then our team. So it's the best life insurance experience in the world by far. And we've built a team that I dreamed about being able to recruit when Linky and I were the only two employees at Ethos. And, you know, we're at the point where my goal is to just be the dumbest person at the company. And I'm on my way. We're hiring just incredible people who are better at their roles than I could ever be at their roles. And that's, you know, the baseline metric for it. It just keeps me so excited to show up every morning with a huge amount of energy and passion. I love it. And it's like very genuine. It comes, it comes through really clearly. I want to move. I could talk to you for hours. I want to move quickly to a quick fire round. So the first is your coolest pinch me moment so far at ethos where you literally said, I can't believe that just happened. What was it? Getting Alexa Von Tobel to invest in ethos <laughs> by far. <laughs> okay. Really a, a true one. What was your biggest pinch me moment? Probably selling our first policy to a woman named Cindy in Nebraska. We had a horrible first, you know, version MVP of the product. It took me two weeks of repeatedly calling her to make the sale. And when it, when the money showed up in our account and when we had a policy issued to her, I said, okay, now, now we're going. So everything else has been building on that. Okay, next question. Fast forward to 2022, how many days a week do we all spend in an office? I think different amounts depending on the team and the person. I think at maximum 100 days in the office, roughly two days a week. And I think at minimum zero. Wow, that is an awesome answer and like definitely very divergent from others I've heard. If you have to interview somebody, what's your favorite interview question? What's your go-to? It's a secret because I don't want anyone listening to this podcast right before they <laughs> interview with me, but it's aimed at determining if someone's a good cultural fit for ethos. We value clear thinking, intellectual honesty, continuous self-improvement, all in commitment to our team, and then a lot of self-awareness. And if someone matches that profile and they have very high horsepower, even if it's not a perfect role on day one for them, we'll hire them. So that's how I interview. I love it. Okay. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Serving the good of humankind and coffee. <laughs> I, I'm right there with you. The planet and coffee. Last question. Other than ethos, if you want to pay it forward to one other really cool startup, it can be anything, a service, an app, a product, something you're eating. What is something everybody needs to know about that's early? I'm using a new app called Mm-hmm, which is a kind of a layer on top of Zoom and is a great product for uh, running better virtual meetings, less kind of awkward presenting, um, allows you to you know put two people in a screen and present together, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I like it and I'm excited. I think we're at the, just kind of the, the beginning of where virtual communication can go. 
I couldn't agree more with you. I think we're in like inning one or two of how this is all gonna work. So I love that one. And I am a fan of that app also. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you wanna learn more about Ethos, head to ethoslife.com, they're hiring. And join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Peter, you are awesome. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you, Alexa.